Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Thursday, August 27th. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. I had one of my favorite moments uh, of the year today because when we had Audrey Dubois-Harris, uh, our great producer, Vanessa Greco, set this up and she she um, she got the clips together for the uh, for the interview. And, you know, so I think sometimes when we play clips, like for our guests, if you're uh, uh, any time a listener to the show since we started doing it, there's a bit of a thing that happens where sometimes we'll go like, now take a listen to this. And we try to catch them off guard. And oftentimes they know what, you know, not that they know what we're going to play, but they can kind of predict it. They'll be like, Ah, yeah, there it is. There's the, there's the my song, my big hit. You know, there, you know, something like that. I love sometimes when we play like old, like the other day, uh, uh, Ty Calendar, one of our producers, got a, a clip of Claremont the Second rapping when he was six years old, and he was kind of blown away by that. Similar today with Audrey Dubois Harris, who's one of our finest opera singers in this country's history. Uh, she's on to talk today about Black Opera Live and to talk about you know how lonely it can be sometimes to be a black opera singer, especially in Canada. Anyway, we, we played her uh, like three recordings, like um, oh, two recordings, I should say. We played her two recordings, one, each of her heroes. And both times she was just like, wow, wow, the whole time. And we really felt like we caught her off guard. And I, I got a kick out of that. Um, really amazing story. This is Aretha Franklin's favorite soprano. And they talk a little bit about how Aretha got in touch and their friendship and and then we talk a little bit about, again, what it's like to be a black opera singer in Canada right now. After that, Demi Moore on her uh, new book, which is I'll, – I'll say this because I, I give a heads up a little later on, but just in case you're about to skip to it. It does deal with um, sexual assault. Demi does tell the story of uh, a, a rape, the, of her being raped when she was a child. And um, it's, it's a pretty, pretty raw conversation with someone whose life has been in the tabloids quite a lot. In fact, at the end, I know I've been talking for a while here, but like at the end, she says something along the lines of like, my life is, well, we end up talking about how that her life is more interesting than the tabloids even let on. But like the actual true story of her life is more interesting than the tabloids had let on. And then finally, Stefan James, who is already one of our biggest actors, but I, I'm sure 20 years from now we'll be talking about him like the way we talk about Jim Carrey right now or something like that. Just one of our finest exports from this country. All right. Show starts now. I know it feels like a lifetime ago. But if you can, I, I want you to think back to August of 2018. It was the month of Aretha Franklin's funeral, one of the greatest singers, soul, R&B, or otherwise of all time. There were a lot of performances that day from Chaka Khan, from Ariana Grande, from Stevie Wonder. But there was another performer in that lineup, an opera singer from Montreal who was known as Aretha Franklin's favorite soprano. Oh, 
That is Audrey Dubois Harris performing Great Is Thy Faithfulness. She's performed for the Obamas at the anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination. And tomorrow night, she's taking part in an event called Black Opera Live Canada. It's an online broadcast exploring the experiences of black artists who work in the classical arts in this country. And I'm so happy to say that Audrey Dubois Harris joins me now from Montreal. Hi, Audrey. How are you? Hi, Tom. I'm doing great. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's it's our pleasure and our joy to have you. Uh, I want to read you a tweet that we found reacting to that performance we just heard at Aretha's funeral. So the first is just a screen grab of former President Bill Clinton <laughs> grabbing his chest in awe. And the second says, quote, Audrey Dubois Harris just saved some souls with that selection. Wow. Do you, do you ever – are you ever able to take a moment and just know that you're you're moving people at sometimes when they need the moving the most – with your voice? Mm. I really don't think about it. Uh, I think that it it becomes a bit heavy (laughs) if I think about it that way. Um, I just do what I do and um, try to be as uh, sincere and as authentic as possible and take it from there and just allow that uh, heavenly power to uh, do what it does. What a great privilege it must be to, when people are at their lowest, when people are in the need of, of most comfort that they call on you. Mm, absolutely. You know, I, I don't take it lightly. And um, it's a privilege that I have to be able to share my gift and in, in the process, allow people to um, have people feel, feel uh, comforted and uh, inspired. It's, it's a great privilege. It really is. So what's the story on you and Aretha? Like, how did you guys become friends? How did you meet? Yeah, it's such a crazy story because, you know, I'm just out here doing my thing. And Aretha tells me herself that she was home uh, in Detroit one day and she had the television on. And when she had the television on, there was a program that came on and it uh, displayed me and I was singing on the screen. And she said she was in her home just kind of doing her thing and the television was on in the background. She said when she heard my voice, she came into the room and stared at the screen and was like, and who is that? You know, as only she can do. (laughs) And so, um, and uh, true to Aretha's nature, she tracked me down and um, found my information now, that story is funny in itself, but she tracked me down, found my information, and we really just hit it off from the very beginning. We had a lot in common. She asked a lot of questions about me, just personal questions, and then, like, girl questions, you know, who's my favorite designer, and who's, you know, um, what shoes do I like the most, and stuff, and we just hit it off. We really did. And that's when she shared, she was like, I just love your singing. I love how you sing with soul and with passion. And I love your gift. And from there, it just really blossomed. You you say you had a lot in common. Yeah, we did. We did. Uh, You know, Aretha, she's very, she's very protective of her space. You know, so she wants to make sure that who she's bringing around is someone that she will want around her and that she likes and so she asked quite a bit of questions um we talked about faith we had that very much in common um we actually prayed together many times over the phone um but we have our faith in common 
music. She loved the fact that I uh, am a Juilliard graduate uh, because she talked about her time studying at Juilliard, studying piano at Juilliard. And um, we were both moms. We're both, you know, just we both come from the Baptist church, grew up on hymns. And uh, so it was just a lot that we had in common, really. I want to start talking about you, but I I did hear there's a story here about the time she introduced you to Robert De Niro. (laughs) Yes. How did you find out about that? (laughs) Yes. So uh, we met, she introduced me to Robert De Niro. His wife was there as well. And um, so he was just so excited because she was like, well, you need to hear her. And she's, she's this classical singer. If you think of Lantine Price, you should, you know, you just 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 know she's she's just awesome and so she was just going on and then so Robert said now um are you are you family and he said he posed the question to me and I for the moment I was just like oh what do I say you know um and she just quickly interjected and she said yes we are family so I was like yes we are family (laughs) you know had to take that and and run with that so um that's, that's a really cool moment. That's beautiful, beautiful. Audrey Dubois-Harris is my guest. When did you start singing? Like, how, how old were you when you realized, you mentioned it as a gift earlier, how old were you when you realized you had that gift? Well, you know, Tom, I've, as far as I can remember, I've always been singing. I was one of those, I wasn't like one of those that had this huge voice as a child, but um, music was always with me. And I would, I grew up in the Baptist church and uh, I would sing my prayers to feel closer to God, you know? And so during the service, it wouldn't be loud. It would just be to myself, but I didn't feel that connection um, by just you know, kind of reciting my prayers or just saying them to myself. I had to actually sing them as a child. And so I've always been connected to music. I didn't start off as a singer, though. I used to play um, the flute and I thought that was going to be my thing. And I uh, was going to play in an orchestra or become this uh, solo flautist, you know, just performing around uh, the country and possibly around the world until I was home one day and I'm a child playing with my dolls um, and I'm singing to myself and my mother overheard me and she was standing at the doorway. I didn't know she was there, Tom. And when I turned around her mouth, like her jaw was like to the floor. She was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know you could sing like that. So, um, and that's, that's really how it, it, it just grew and it, it, it took off from there. Now, now that being said, I mean, you, you talk about how, uh, you were re- raised in the church and you were raised singing in the Baptist church. I, we did find out you, you did want to be a pop singer, specifically <laughs> this, <laughs> this pop singer. Take a listen. Esteemed classical singer Audrey Dubois Harris, who who are we listening to right now? That is hilarious, Tom. That is none other than Mariah Carey, and that is the song. Oh my gosh, that is the song. Tell me the oh. story. I heard you. I heard you talk to your teacher about wanting to be 
<laughs> well, yes, because, you know, after my mom, she was like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know you could sing like that. And she said, I'm going to find a teacher for you. So immediately when she said this, I was like, oh, yes, I'm going to be like Mariah Carey. I'm going to be singing like Whitney. And um, and it was particular in particular that song, um, Mariah just, the way she sings it, the way she kills it. I remember as a little girl, I used to just listen to that and it used to just play on repeat. You know, I would be like, I gotta hear it again. I have to hear it again. And so I started studying and my teacher at the time, she just kept giving me these classical pieces. And so one during one lesson, I said, you know, you keep giving me these classical pieces to learn and to sing. When are you gonna give me the pop song? And on that day, Tom, my bubble, she burst my bubble because she said, my dear, you don't have a pop voice. You have a classical voice. And I was like, classical voice? Oh, no, you know. Um, But it has worked out for me. I will say that. But at the time, I was like, what? I won't be singing like my Mariah. And, you know, uh, at the time, that was. That was devastating news. <laughs> it's heartbreaking. I remember when I was told I wouldn't sing like Mariah Carey. Was, <laughs> right, right, right. It, it was it, it was heartbreaking. I remember. I remember it, very, it was only last week. It was, it was heartbreaking. Um, well, let's let's talk a little bit about classical music. Um, sure, sure. Th- there are some incredible black women performing at the highest levels of opera, and you did mention one a little bit earlier in your story about Robert De Niro. Take a listen to this. Audrey Dubois-Harris is my guest, uh, known as Aretha Franklin's favorite soprano, also one of the most esteemed classical music, uh, classical musicians in our country. Uh, she's based in Montreal. Tomorrow she's participating in an online event called Black Opera Live Canada, which we're going to talk about in a second. But first, Audrey, who are we listening to right now? Oh, that is the great Leontine Price singing La, uh, Teen Bersogno from La Rondine by Giacomo Puccini. Yes. When, when did you yes. when did you first hear Leontine Price? Well, I was in high school, and I had uh, the great privilege to study with such an awesome teacher. Her name is Birgit Fioravante, and Birgit, you know, it was my first year at the school, and first year students were not supposed to have private lessons, and you know, we were just supposed to take our choir classes and our um, theory classes and other music classes that we were supposed to take at the School of the Arts in Miami. And so um, Birgit would pull me out of choir and she would give me lessons and she would take me to the listening library. And so on this one afternoon, she took me to the listening library and she sat right next to me and she gave me my headphones. And right before I put them on, she said, there is a lady that you remind me of. And I was like, I was just looking at her like, there's a lady that I remind you of? And she said, she's great. She said, and I believe that you will one day be as great. And I was, and so she played Kiel Bersogno from La Rondine by Giacomo Puccini that you just played now. And afterwards, you know, I'm this, 
I'm this new kid on the block. And I was like, I remind you of her. And she said, oh, yes. And so uh, that was actually one of my uh, signature pieces that I used to always sing. You know, I used to do a lot of competitions, uh, national competitions, and that was my go-to piece. You know, I just loved singing it. And so, uh, wow, great, great memory. But we're going to talk about uh, a little bit more about representation in just a second, but, you know, what did it mean to you to see Leontine Price, like another black woman and another soprano in big stages uh, in opera all over the world? Well, you know, representation matters. I, I really believe that. And it's important, it's vital to have people of all hues represented, people of all cultures represented, you know, and no matter what field, you know, you have to know that whatever your, your goal is, whatever your drive is, your passion is, that it's attainable. And so one thing that I respect and admire so much about Leontine and um, people like, uh, uh, well, just, just Leontine, I mean, just the fact that she... She didn't have much representation. Of course, there was the great Marian Anderson at the time. And of course, much respect to these ladies because they did it and they did it at a level of excellence during the time where not only were we not represented, but we were considered, you know, very much so less than. And so they, they set the standard, they set the bar. And so it's, it's critical to have someone that looks like you to say, oh, yeah, I can do that. But um, I always believe that. I always, even before high school, I always believed that greatness was achievable. You know, I, I don't know where it came from. It just, it was something deep within. Uh, so when you started singing, how often did you meet other black opera singers? Mm, not often. Um, you know, we're there. There, you know, there, there is a, a community of us and just of some fabulous singers, um, but it's not, it's, it's not the norm. It's not the standard. And I think that should change. I really do. I mean, what does that do? I mean, there's, there's a world in which that's very discouraging. Really, there wasn't, Tom. There was no room to be discouraged. Uh, I, I knew that this is what I was born to do. I knew that music and singing in particular was my, was my, my gift. And so I, I couldn't let the fact that I didn't see representation and I didn't see others that looked like me stop me. Actually, that was more of a push to say, okay, well, then if I have to be um, that person, if I have to be that one that other generations and other young singers will look at to say, hey, if she can do it, then I can as well, or I want to strive for that, I want to strive for excellence, um, then so be it. Well, so tell me a little bit about Black Opera Live. Yes, well, Black Opera Live, I'm so excited to be a part of that. Um, it's a conversation series with baritone Kenneth Overton. He's also uh, the associate producer of Black Opera, the film. And uh, this special episode is related to being a Black artist in the arts, um, and in particular in Canada and throughout. You know, the, uh, it's dealing with three international opera singers and, and classical singers. And so um, 
you know, it'll be, it'll be really fun to talk uh, about our journeys and talk about our roles as mothers and um, also being a, being women of color in the arts. You know, we've been talking a little bit about uh, representation on stage, and we were talking a little bit about how often you meet other uh, black opera singers. But, you know, in, one thing that doesn't get talked about as much is the audience. You know, when you look out into your audience when you're singing opera, how often are you seeing black audience members? Yes, not often. Um, not often enough, I will say that. And and um, I think these days they, there is more of a reach trying to reach out into communities. I think some opera companies are, uh, are doing that. They're reaching back and, and, and trying to reach out actually into their communities and uh, doing it through outreach programs, uh, going into the schools. I think it's important to grab the young people. Um, and so going into the schools, doing, bringing the schools into, uh, into the, the theaters. So they do these special performances for um, young people and also going into churches as well. So there is more of an effort. I do see that now, um, but I still feel like there's yet very much um, more work to be done. What, what, what do you think needs to change, like it, just to help you and, and other black performers in opera? Well, I think uh, just going back to um, my beginning and, and seeing, wanting to see more of, of people of color. And as I was saying before, you know, just people of all hues need to be hired and, uh, and on the stage and promoted the same. Uh, and so not a difference in promotion, but more people of all uh, ethnicities and cultures and races, just, you know, to, I think in the world of the classical arts, it needs to represent the world at large. You know, we live in a very diverse world and that needs to be reflected on the stage. I know you got a kid. Is she into the opera side of things or the Mariah Carey side of things? <laughs> right now, Mariah is winning, you know. <laughs> right now, the Katy Perry's and, uh, you know, all of those girls, they're winning right now. <laughs> but she's very musical and she plays the piano uh, but if you ask her about singing, she'll say she sing she doesn't sing in public yet. That's her that's her response, you know. Matter of time. Audrey, uh, thank you so much for your time. What a what a joy and honor it is to talk to you. And uh, thanks so much for, for talking to me about your story. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Audrey Dubois Harris is an opera singer based in Montreal. You can catch her on Black Opera Live, an online event happening tomorrow night. We'll link to more details on our website, cbc.ca slash Q. Sent his song. They called him Jesus. He came to love. He and forgive. He lived and Oh, man. Oh, man. 
How good is that? That is Audrey Dubois-Harris with her version of the great hymn, Because He Lives. Audrey is an opera singer based in Montreal. You can catch her on Black Opera Live, an online event happening tomorrow night. Again, the details will be on our website, cbc.ca slash Q. Audrey's getting ready to release an album. No official date for you yet, but it'll be called Lift Every Voice. People in the arts and entertainment world are voicing their outrage over the shooting of Jacob Blake. Jacob, a 29-year-old black man, was shot multiple times in the back by Wisconsin police on Sunday. The shooting happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in front of Jacob's children. He's now paralyzed from the waist down. After footage of the incident went public, hundreds of thousands of people began sharing the video and pictures of Jacob with his sons. And as you might have heard, the sports world has united to show their support in protest. Three NBA Game 5s set for yesterday were postponed after the Bucks announced they were striking, that they will not play. It's a move that shows their solidarity with Jacob Blake and Black Lives Matter. The NBA Coaches Association said in a statement, The baseless shooting of Jacob Blake and other black men and women by law enforcement underscores the need for action. Not after the playoffs, not in the future, but now. In soccer, five Major League Soccer matches are called off. And in baseball, three Major League Baseball games have been postponed, including those of the Milwaukee Brewers. The board of the National Basketball Association will be holding a meeting today to decide their next steps. There's no word as of the time that I'm speaking to you right now as to whether or not the Toronto Raptors playoff game set for tonight will go forward. But the Los Angeles Lakers and the Los Angeles Clippers have both announced that they will not be going forward with the rest of the season. And you'll hear a lot that this moment in sports is unprecedented. You'll hear that a lot in the news. I know I'm hearing that. And in many ways it is, but it's worth in this moment recognizing Just to name a few, Muhammad Ali's resistance to the Vietnam War and how it affected his boxing career and the prime of his career, the NBA in the 60s and their support of Ali, their considerations of a strike themselves after Martin Luther King's death, not to mention Tommy Smith and John Carlos raising their fists at the 68 Olympics, and of course, Colin Kaepernick. Um, In the entertainment world, they're also responding to the shooting of Jacob Blake. Rapper Cardi B posted on Instagram, Wow, this is sickening. I can't believe it. What's going to be the excuse now? Beyonce, who just released her Black is King film, said on Instagram, Sending prayers and thoughts to Jacob Blake and his family. Other celebrities voicing their condolences and outrage over the shooting of Jacob Blake are Viola Davis, Oprah, Common, George Takei, Aisha Tyler, along with many, 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 many others. And all this is going on just ahead of the 22nd annual Black August Hip Hop Benefit Concert. This is a free concert championing social justice reform. It airs live on YouTube at 4 p.m. on Sunday. Sound off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with from Something Else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. 
you'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. There was a time when Demi Moore's life was splashed across the pages of glossy magazines almost constantly. I mean, she was the actress sandwiched between a potter's wheel and Patrick Swayze in the movie Ghost. She was the tough-as-nails Navy SEAL in the movie G.I. Jane. But the paparazzi was fascinated by her haircut or her outfits or the end of her marriage to Bruce Willis or the age gap between her and Ashton Kutcher, her third husband. But in her memoir, Inside Out, Demi Moore has taken control of her own story. She opens up about how, even though she's one of the most famous women in all of Hollywood, she's actually dealt with a lot of insecurity and inner turmoil for a lot of her life. Now listen, a quick heads up. This conversation you're about to hear between me and Demi, it does get into some difficult topics, including sexual assault. When Demi spoke with me last November, she started at the beginning of her story, when her parents would often uproot their small family, crisscrossing the United States and starting from scratch in a brand new city over and over again. This is what I knew. So that was – it was my baseline normal to move. And it started out, I think, for, for my dad who was very good at what he did. At that time, there was, you know, layout advertising. Um, he would get opportunities for promotions. I think as their, as, as their lives were, you know, building, um, I think that's when there were things that were unresolved emotionally, internally not dealt with. And, uh, you know, I refer to it in the book as geographics. And geographics are you're moving on to the next as if that's going to be better. But the reality is, yes, you can move, but everything is going to still come with you. Right. In in including, I mean, you know, some, some of the more things that stuck with me is that, you know, if there was an infidelity in the in the family, instead of addressing it, you would just the family would move away from the person who the infidelity was with, if you know what I mean. Right, as if that, and as if that was going to be the answer to the problem. You know, and, but also, like, weren't they, like, they were kids. I think that also stuck out to me in this. They were children. And that, and that is something, you know, because I really hold so much compassion for my, my parents. They had a lack of, of tools and language, and they were babies. I mean, my mother was not yet 19 when I was born. My dad was 19. I mean, I can't even – I mean, we, we barely know who we are, let alone having to take on the responsibility of guiding another life. And especially if you have your own traumas mm. and baggage that's, that's not had an opportunity to be really digested and processed and, and placed and held in a way that is – supportive for you. And so I I know that my parents really did the best they could. Not that that was okay um, or that it didn't have real massive repercussions on me and my brother. Um, But I don't think it was intentional. Tell me a little bit more about your mom. What was she like when you were a kid? 
she was extremely warm, um, loving, very welcoming. Um, there, there was always room for another at our table. Mm. But what's interesting is the the judgment that she had of herself, mm-hmm. the misunderstandings she held of um, that she wasn't loved or lovable. That is ultimately the filter in which she was moving through life with, which meant she was, you know, constantly trying to fill something that she felt had never been filled and at the same time not feeling that she was worthy. And so there was a lot of, I I think, self-medicating to try to deal with something that I don't think she understood except for that she just didn't feel good and wanted to get out of herself. And it it created behavior that was extremely unpredictable. Um, And for me, my, you know, my mother was the child. And I stepped in very quickly to being the adult. I mean, in in a really, um, and again, I don't want to describe a scene in the book that's obviously so harrowing and it actually happened to you. I have to remember that it's not fiction. But that happens pretty early in the book. I mean, that that happens pretty early that you have to kind of look after your mother, you know, after she's overdosed. And mm-hmm. I think you were, you were a child. You were like, what, five or six or seven or something like that, were you? A little, a little bit older. Yeah. But, um, but then you, but in that there moment. Was, it yeah. was that point. It's that point, And I think anybody who's had a parent with these kind of challenges, you are looking at yourself and you're thinking, well, there anything that I have going on, any problem I might have is just not as important as whatever they have going on. And so you begin to just start to push down whatever you might need or feel or think is a problem. What do you think that did to you as you got older? Well, I think on, you know, on one hand, it made me extremely self-sufficient, self-reliant. But it also um, made me feel that it wasn't okay to ask for help. If you're just tuning in, my guest is the uh, actor and producer Demi Moore. She's published a memoir. It's called Inside Out. Um, And in the book, you you seek answers to why, you know, one of the most successful actors of our time struggled with insecurity, struggled with inner turmoil. But there's this pivotal point in your teenage years that it's obviously hard to ask you about. Again, up to you how much you want to say, but you talk about being raped at 15. Mm -hmm. and, And there's questions about your mother's involvement with that. Um, I mean, to t- tell me a little bit, tell me as much as you want to about that, or just tell me a little sure. bit about, I mean, go, please go ahead. You know, again, remembering that my mother was quite young, like when I'm 15, you know, she's not that much older. She's like close to your age. Um, and so there was a kind of feeling of, uh, of us being like peers. Um, and the situation that occurred, um, With you know, uh, you know, we, for lack of a better description, was a you know a family friend. He knew he, my mother. He knew me. Not someone we had known a super long time. And the situation of coming home um, and from school, and this man being in the apartment with no one else there, me not knowing how he got in in there. And feeling trapped. I was trapped. 
And and then to have weeks later after, you know, he um, had had this experience with me that he said out of his own anger because I then just didn't want to have anything to do with him. Couldn't believe he had even shown up two weeks later um, to say, how does it feel to be whored by your mother for $500? And that was a question I could not wrap myself around even considering. And that's why I say in the book from that day, I was an orphan mm. because any sense of any, – any semblance of safety that I might have thought I had was gone and the fear of having to explore that question be, as if that was true. Am I that? Am I that? Um, I also couldn't do and I just shut the door on all of it um, and I don't I, in my heart of hearts, I don't believe it was a conscious, um, uh, upfront transaction. But nevertheless, she let him in. I described it as a, piv- a pivotal moment for you. Am, am, mm-hmm. I, am I right about that? Oh, definitely. I mean, I moved out uh, on my own two days later, and I had just turned 16 years old. So, so what's the experience then like of, of writing it, of having to relive it? You know, it actually was extremely freeing, really, and and healing. I I I think it was you know more than ten years ago um, was the first I had ever really looked at it as rape. I just always thought it was my fault that I had put myself in the position that maybe I had behaved in a in a way that was provocative or. Um, that that no matter what, even my mother's actions, whatever they may have been, were my fault. So I I think by bringing it out in the open and really looking at it and being able to go back in in a certain way and really comfort and acknowledge my little girl within me that mm. went through that and and. Um, forgive myself and look at the idea that this is a misunderstanding that I'd held against myself for basically my whole life, that it was my fault, that I, I, uh, that I was somehow a bad person. And say a 50-year-old man in a room with a 15-year-old girl is not the 15-year-old girl's fault. I know. And, and what's so incredibly sad here is, isn't, isn't that just what we hear all the time now? You know, well, you know when we started um, hearing, when people started brave, bravely speaking out, you know, as, as part of, you know, Me Too and, and, and that. Right. Um, how many times did we hear that? I, I, didn't, I didn't think it was rape. I, I thought it was my fault. I didn't want to talk about it. Definitely. And, and, in, and, and there res- really isn't or wasn't up until now um, uh, uh, a place of safety to say it, or even if you did, it marked you and it and it didn't matter. You still had to carry on. And I think for me as someone who has operated much of their life as a survivor, I think I too looked at it like you, like I'm moving forward. But it also put my life at a pace that was like almost running to then with everything I did to prove that I'm not that. 
and me needing to, you know, the drive to then, like, do things that would make it okay that I'm here. It's so meaningful to hear you say that to me. Uh, if you're just doing it, I'm speaking to, to Demi Moore. It's so meaningful to hear you say that to me because um, I want to jump forward a little bit in time. Please. Um, but I, I'm going to play you a couple of clips, and, I, and I'll tell you afterwards why I'm playing these specific clips. Okay. So uh, first off, I want to start uh, with G.I. Jane. Um, okay. You, 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 you showed a woman using the power and strength of her own body. Take a listen to this. You're not getting anything out of me. You might as well just put me back in the cage. You are in a cage, right here, right now. I'm sorry, am I supposed to be afraid? And then there's Striptease. Your character used her body in a different way to, to, to empower herself, to get what she needed. I love you girls. I really do. But I can't be working here when I go back to court. Oh, yes, Your Honor. I found a new job. I'm working at the Eager Beaver. And the reason I want to play those two clips... <laughs> by the way, how great does that sound to listen back to that? <laughs> Really funny. Yeah, it's really good. Um, I, just ear, just hearing "eager beaver" is funny. So <laughs> I, I think we can play the words "eager beaver" on public radio. I think we can do it. Okay. Uh, the reason I, I wanted to play those for you because I was I'm, I'm fortunate enough to work with some really incredible women on this program, um, and and we were talking in the office, and they said that how they were coming of age around that time. I mean, we were all kind of born uh, on our show around the mid '80s, you know, late '80s, and these movies were a really big deal to them. They made them feel really, really powerful, right? I hope so. I mean, that's the case. And then, then, and then well, I can tell you that's the case from them. And then to, to read this book and, and see that these images, these moments that were so meaningful to them, that it was challenging for you, that you were facing your own body insecurity, that, 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 that this, was, this, was, this was hard for you. Well, you know, it's... It's so easy for us to compare our insides to someone's outsides, and we don't really ever know what might be going on, um, which is part of, you know, the idea that I titled the book Inside Out, um, uh, because the, you know, ongoing issues I had with my body, and uh, and those two films are perfect examples of you know, of me dominating my body, changing it over, you know, multiple times um, in this desire to control it, um, to will it, to being um, the way I wanted. Um, and in some cases, obviously, for a role, that's a wonderful uh, thing to be able to do. But internally, that feeling that it, I needed to be a certain way to be um, – really desired to be um, to be great or to be um, somebody that other people uh, uh, wanted in their film to be chosen all of those things and it's a it was a torment an absolute torment at the same time as you're posing nude pregnant and vanity fair for example you know, it was such an empowering photo to to women in in North America um, about reclaiming your bodies and about you know showing that you know what what our standards of beauty are in our society are flawed. But it was accompanied, and I I, I had only ever seen the photo. It was un, it was accompanied by a pretty unkind profile, right? Yeah, definitely. It was definitely. Oh, I, I it was so hurtful. 
it was so hurtful, um, you know, and the angry part of me at the moment was, uh, um, you know, probably felt more like, well, at least they'll only remember the picture. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but they definitely. I think, I think they kind of did. I think uh, that did. But they didn't. You know, the the. Um, but nobody remembers the article. No, no. I, I, and I, yet I, I, it. Yeah. It it did have a huge impact. I think I talk about this in the book on on uh, people questioning: Am I difficult to work with? Um, yeah. uh, you know um, that I really had to answer to when I hadn't really done anything really to match what had been um, described or created about me in that article. So, I mean, and I guess that leads me to where I wanted to go, which is that, like, the idea of you haven't been able to tell your own story. I mean, we just talked about that Vanity Fair profile, you know, this wonderful, empowering photo attached to a pretty unkind, unfair article. And then uh, some of my favorite moments in the book are where you uh, describe the anxiety of paparazzi. We hear people talk about the discomfort of paparazzi, but the anxiety of paparazzi. Mm -hmm. And and, and magazines uh, who, who have made let's be honest, millions of dollars scrutinizing your marriages with, you know, Bruce Willis, with Ashton Kutcher. Do you feel like you're you're taking control of your own story in this memoir? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, what I what I know is that it's it's my story. It's my truth. There's no one truth. And in this I'm 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 sharing it from Again, my perspective from the inside out, everything that they've done is from the outside in. It's all um, like a out of a, a need to tear you down. In a way, being able to show what was really happening for me from the inside I at least hope it gives a more full picture. Yeah, because I mean, don't we – I mean it made me think so much about how much we dehumanize celebrities. And listen, I'm probably guilty of it. God knows I heard you know, jokes about you in a late-night monologue or you know, in, some, in some garbage air, airport magazine. You know what I mean? And you forget that these – I mean this kind of goes without saying. But you forget that these are real people. These are real people who have complicated and nuanced stories behind them. It, I mean, I mean, the nature is like this reductive nature, even with the book coming out of certain tabloids and those kind of, you know, cheesier publications or online trying to make this really uh, as if it's, um, I don't know, salacious and yeah, sensational. Demi dishes on and, Ashton or something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. or or that I'm even like or that this is even about throwing anybody under the bus. Yeah, yeah. It's not, and um, and you know, and I I I hold so much um, love and respect for everyone that I share about in the book, and you know, and again, I don't see myself as a victim, and nor do I have any interest in blaming anyone, not Bruce, not Ashton, not my parents, because this is my life; these are my choices. However, you know. However, situations may inform them, they're my choices. But that doesn't necessarily, you know, me expressing like forgiveness, love, kindness, appreciation isn't what sells those kind of cheap tabloids. I know, but isn't the great irony that the, the, 
the real story is actually far more interesting? I hope it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? The real story is actually I think far more interesting. Because it's – you know what? Because – we're all human. None of us are exempt. We all go through extreme challenges. We all experience loss. Um, many of us experience traumas. Yeah. And and I think knowing that we're not alone is really what my intention behind this was. To me, I can't thank you enough for talking to me today. Thank you so much for being so generous, thoughtful, and, and kind. It really was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to talk to you as well. Demi Moore's memoir is called Inside Out, and it's out now. My name is Tom Power. During your pandemic binging, you might have first noticed Canada's very own Stefan James on the Amazon Prime show Homecoming. He played opposite a little-known up-and-coming actor named Julia Roberts. Good luck to her. We hope she makes it. Stefan got a Golden Globe nomination for his role on that show, and now he's nominated for an Emmy this year for playing Rayshawn in the series Hashtag Free Rayshawn on Quibi. I had the chance to sit down and talk to Stefan back when he starred in the movie If Beale Street Could Talk. It's a film adaptation of the James Baldwin novel. It was directed by Barry Jenkins, the same guy who made Moonlight. And I got to say, Stefan's career has been pretty nonstop lately. And our conversation kind of felt like this rare 15-minute oasis where he wasn't on the phone, where he wasn't filming a new role or figuring out what his new role was going to be. It felt like 15 minutes where he just had the chance to exhale and reflect on the amazing momentum he's had so early in his life. I started by asking Stefan James, one of our finest actors in this country, what brought him to the movie If Beale Street Could Talk? For one, um, Barry Jenkins, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, I've been a big fan of Barry for a long, long time. Um, and then, obviously, James Baldwin. The first time that James Baldwin is being adapted ever, you know, to have an opportunity to, to bathe in that man's language and be a part of such an iconic piece of literature, you know, that, that really struck me as something that was important. Well, tell me a little bit about the research you did, because I heard that even though this film is set in the 1970s, you were looking towards real-world stories for some inspiration. Yeah, yeah. Actually, my biggest source of inspiration for this character was a young man by the name of Khalif Browder, who in New York City in 2010 was charged with petty theft of a backpack, a crime that he didn't commit. Mm. And he was sent away to Rikers Island for three years, two and a half of which he spent in solitary confinement, mm. you know, as a 16-year-old boy. And this story really, really, really hit home to me because I didn't have to dig back to the 1960s or 1970s to find an example of this. I only had to look back to 2010. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, I probably could have looked back to like a couple of weeks ago yeah, right. to find someone to, to base this character off of. But ultimately, it was... You know, me feeling like these stories aren't told enough. You know, they're not told enough in film. They're not told enough in, in documentaries. And this allows us to sort of bring a voice to the voiceless, bring a level of humanity to these guys who often get written off as statistics. I know exactly what you mean. When I was watching um, If Beale Street Could Talk, again, it, it set in the 1970s in New York. But I was forgetting all the time. Yeah. Like there were moments... I would be. I would see an old car, and I'd be reminded. Oh, wait, this isn't now. Right, right. I think that's the the beauty and and maybe the unfortunate, you know, timelessness of Baldwin. That that those words that he wrote in 1974 they resonate so heavily today. Including as a Canadian uh, telling a story about America. Yeah, yeah. Of course. I mean, you know, to me, I think that 
first of all, I'm an actor, so I, you know, I got to do my job and do my research. But, you know, a lot of these problems are, are you know, Canadians aren't, um, you know, they're not different from from this, and the experience is not different. So, um, you know, I wish I could say that that I had a, a totally different perspective, but a lot of these things are familiar to me as well. So, growing up in Scarborough, I read this that. A lot, not, not a lot of the reason you're an actor, but some of the reason you're an actor is because your mom used to give you VHS tapes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. We had the biggest, like, VHS c- collection ever, like, on the planet, like, hundreds of VHSs. And we, me and my brothers used to just watch movies all day long. Like, what, what, what was she giving you? Um, you know, Lion King, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, the fun stuff. But it was always something for us to, I think, you know, Honestly, looking back on it, I think it was a way for her to keep us in the house. Right, right. Um, but honestly, I just had so much time and so many memories from taking in like cinema with my brothers. So is it, is it, a, is it a situation where you're watching television and you go like, oh, I, I can do that. I want to do that. Um, I don't know that I ever had that right. thought. I think I just sort of like took baby steps, put one foot in front of the other. Mm-hmm. You know, I started doing theater in high school and was like, hmm, I wonder what film and television would be like. And then I got myself a manager. Mm-hmm. And then it's kind of like, okay, I guess I'll audition and see if I, if I get stuff. And then I started to get stuff and, and you know, sort of just stacked one thing on top of the other. And, and here I am. Well, let me know if I'm getting too heady here because I'm, I'm a musician. I have no acting experience whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but I'm, I'm always so curious about what motivates someone to want to inhabit somebody else, like mm-hmm. wants to inhabit someone else's story. Um, well, I mean, sometimes it, it's it's an escape. You know, it's a it's a form of expression. Um, you an know, escape I, for who? An escape for you? Yeah, for 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 the artist. I think you know, being someone outside of yourself. It's it's. Um, you know, it's an interesting sort of feeling. And then, you know, sometimes it feels important. It feels necessary. Um, you know, for instance, with this character, it just felt like it was bigger than me. You know, I felt like this story needed to be told because, yeah. you know, no nobody gets to see, you know, these stories get told. No one gets to give these characters a voice and give them a level of humanity. And and so to me, there's that responsibility. It's like fulfilling my, my duty and my purpose as, a, as an artist. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with Stefan James about the Barry Jenkins film, if Beale Street could talk. Barry Jenkins' next project after his film Moonlight, which won the Best Picture Academy Award in 2017. And I heard you were telling people, I'm going to work with Barry Jenkins one day. Yeah. Before you got the role. Yeah. Is that right? I mean, it sounds crazy, but I, I kind of, you know, I really believe in the like, speaking things into fruition and into existence. So you, you, if you say it out loud, it'll come to you. Yeah, I would yeah. tell everybody, like all my friends, they'd be like, oh, I'm going to make a movie with Barry Jenkins. And I'm um, not sure when it's going to be, but it's going to happen. And, um, you know, I honestly didn't expect for it to be this soon, for it to be literally his follow-up to, you know, Best Picture Moonlight. Um, but so grateful that this was it. So I'm, I'm always so nervous about this because sometimes I have I have folks in on the show and I'm a huge fan of their work. I'm not going to say any names, but then you meet them and yeah. you go, oh, God. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not going to make you say anybody's name, but I, yeah. I know you've also had that experience. We know. We know. We've met people. Yeah. You know, <laughs> bare naked ladies. No, I'm only joking. It's not. They're very, very nice. But I love you, the bare naked ladies. Me too. But you meet you meet people and you're kind of like, oh, come on. And yeah. now you can't, I can't even watch your movies anymore. Right. Right. So how did the actual experience of working with Barry Jenkins match up to the expectation of working with Barry Jenkins? Wow, I think it it may have exceeded it. Is that so? Yeah. He's uh you know, Barry Jenkins is a special, special filmmaker. He has an incredible eye for storytelling. Um he's remarkably patient. I don't think I've ever met a director who's as patient as he is. And you know, 
and honestly, surprisingly very relaxed. You know, he has this thing about him where, you know, he's just able to keep everybody in a really chilled, relaxed environment, um, you know, keep an intimate space, feeling comfortable. So, so it's, you know, it's a healthy space for the actors to be vulnerable, to try things, to fail, mm. to look silly. Mm. And, you know, he sort of embraces all that and allows you time and space to find yourself within these characters, which is something I really appreciate. And what a... What a, what a... What a challenging role it is to work in his films because, and I know people haven't seen it yet, so they, but, but when they see it, they'll, they'll get an idea. Mm-hmm. It's such a quiet film. Yeah. There are long stretches with no dialogue or just one piece of dialogue. That's, yeah. that's an acting, I don't even know, like an Olympics of acting. Yeah. I mean, and that's a big credit to Barry that he sort of allowed those moments to live. Like he, he doesn't rush anything as a director. I think that you, it allows the audience to experience things in real time and to, to feel like they're a part of the story in a way. But I, I love that you didn't feel like you were over your head at all. I love that you went in and, you know, like there's – it can be scary to work with one of your heroes. Yeah. I mean, a little daunting. I'm not going to act, you know, like I just walked in all nonchalant. You know, it is James Baldwin and it's Barry Jenkins and you want to be able to to do both of those legacies, you know, justice. But um, it's a big, big credit to Barry and, and, and the environment he created for us. Yeah, and you know what they they say that like when when what does Oprah say when preparation meets opportunity? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Exactly. Uh, I also heard that I'm quoting Oprah here this morning. By the way, uh-huh. I'm making fun of bare naked ladies and quoting Oprah here on the <laughs> CBC. <laughs> I heard that Barry Jenkins let you take off for a little while to do the chemistry test with Julia Roberts for 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 homecoming. Is that right? Yeah. This is okay. So this is crazy. So I was already filming Beale Street in, yeah. in New York. Um, last fall, and um, and you know, I had this this chemistry read uh, for Homecoming with Julia. So that's that thing where you you get together with Julia and figure out whether you can work together. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and so I had like maybe fourteen, fifteen pages of dialogue. And if you don't know, that's a lot of dialogue, a lot, a lot of dialogue. And so I was just caught up in in all these words, you know, while filming Bill Street. And Barry Jenkins was nice enough to let me go to Los Angeles and and have a chemistry read with with Julia. I, do you ever have these moments where you're, I can't believe I'm here, like working with Julia Roberts, working with Barry Jenkins? Well, that's pretty much every day, I think. You know, um, every day is a pinch me moment. Um, you know, I worked with Julia every day for like 12 hours a day for maybe six or seven months. Mm-hmm. And you still don't get used to that. You still don't get used to that. You know, every day it was just like a joy to like sit across from one of the the greatest actresses of all time and to be able to pick up gems and, and, and learn and laugh and love. And, and she's just, you know, aside from the incredible actress she is, she's just an incredible human being. And, but in addition to all the success you've been having with the roles you've been taking on yourself, you're also really focused on creating opportunities for black actors and filmmakers yeah. in Toronto and Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the legacy of, of black cinema, um, especially in, in Canada, has been something that's really important to me. It's always been important to me and my brother, Shamir Anderson, who's also an actor. Mm -hmm. And so three years ago, we started an initiative called The Black Ball, um, which is a celebration every year during TIFF, basically honoring black filmmakers and and the work they've done for the year. And, um, you know, this year, actually, this past September was the first year that Cameron Bailey and TIFF partnered with us um, to put on the event. So it's just something really, really special. I'm just proud of, of how far it's come so far. How do you think we're doing here in Canada? 
Um, you know, it's interesting. I think that there's still a lot of work to be done. I think there's still a lot of work to be done. But, you know, I'm happy to, to sort of help pioneer and steer that. Um, you know, there's a lot of incredible young actors who are coming out of this city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at Mina Masood, who just did um, Aladdin, the Aladdin remake with Will Smith. You look at Lamar Johnson, who just did um, Hate You Give. He's doing incredible, incredible work. And my brother, Shamir Anderson, just did Destroyer with Nicole Kidman and is on Goliath now. It's just like... I feel like this is a, a a melting pot for just extreme artistry, especially in the in the world of cinema. And it's time to embrace that. And, and I'm so happy we can be a part of inspiring a whole new generation of artists. You are going to be a big part of inspiring a lot of young actors, like, you know, 20, 30 years from now. I hope so. When, when you and I are, you know, in the old folks' home playing shuffleboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sipping tea. <laughs> yeah, sip, sipping tea like we're doing right now. Um, uh, I'm sure people are going to be coming in saying, you know, I, I, I figured out I could do this because of Stefan. James, I'm sure they are. Yeah, I hope so, man. Um, I, I, I'm always reluctant when I look at an actor's catalog or an actor's, uh, what do they call that? It's a discography, filmography, mm-hmm. in discography of music, uh, filmography to make too many assumptions. Because I know that roles take a long time. There's a lot of things that go into taking on roles. But when, when I look at a, a couple of these, you know, when I look at roles in Selma, yeah. when I look as, as Jesse Owens in Race, I look at this uh, James Baldwin adaptation now, among many others, you know... Am I right to make an assumption here about why you choose the roles that you choose? Well, what's the assumption? Well, that you might prefer roles or you, you, see, you see acting not just as acting but as an opportunity to tell stories that are important. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in art that reflects life, art that reflects society, um, and ultimately, you know, just having a higher purpose. You know, we don't own the art. We're, custo- we're custodians of the art. We got we, we to gotta take care of it. And, and so it's my job to, to bring stories like this to light. You know, I don't claim to be an activist or a politician or anything like that. But um, I think that if this is my way of, of speaking and, and, and ra- raising discussion and helping people, um, you know, talk about some of the issues that are so potent in, in the country today, in the world today, then, you know, I'm happy to, to be a part of that. Though I hear you also want to be Spider-Man. I would love to be Spider-Man. We should make some calls and try and get it done. You know what we should do? Because you said, you know, I, I don't like to believe that if I say things out loud, mm-hmm. we should just talk as if you're already. Is that how it works? I like to say. Yeah, just, I mean, just call me Peter. So we have Peter Parker over here. <laughs> I don't know if you know this about <laughs> Stefan James, but he's going to be in the new Spider-Man. I don't know if you know about that. Oh, man, that's awesome. I, really, I, I still want 10% if that happens. That is Stefan James talking about his role in the film. If Beale Street Could Talk, directed by Barry Jenkins, which if you haven't seen is... Certainly worth watching. It's one of the most uh, affecting films uh, and just great films I've seen during my time on Q. It's streaming right now. It's called If Beale Street Could Talk. Uh, Stefan James, not quite Spider-Man yet, but, you know, I really think it's going to happen. He's nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Actor in a Short-Form Comedy or Drama Series for his role playing Rayshon in the series Hashtag Free Rayshon on Quibi. The Emmy Awards are on Sunday, September 20th. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Katy Perry, who is one of the biggest pop stars ever. Um, we'll be talking a little bit about – well, actually, I'll be honest with you because this is the podcast. We get, we get real on the podcast. I don't know if you know about that, but on podcast, you're supposed to get real. Uh, here's me getting real. This is a, this is a repeat of, of an interview we already did with Katy Perry. Uh, and when this interview first aired, 
it made international news. Like, it was weird, like CNN and, and Fox News, which I thought was strange, and like People Magazine. And what's the one? Uh, Hello Magazine was like posting this one because she – I mean, they, they, I think they took something kind of salacious from it, but which is fine. But, but my feeling was that what Katie does tomorrow in this interview you're going to hear, and it's a podcast, so I guess you could hear it right now if you want to, but like she tells the truth about what her life is actually like in a way that I don't think the music industry, and especially when you're like a dance pop singer, you don't often have the room to do. So either wait till tomorrow and hear it on the radio or go check it out right now. It's on YouTube, but uh, Katie Perry on the show tomorrow. We'll see you. Oh, you know what? How about something live to make you tune in? How about that, uh, radio host? Our cue this panel will be here tomorrow to talk about this week in music. All right, we'll see you then later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.